0: to be with you. The other thing I wanted to say is it's really so great to see the gym packed during basketball games. Uh, We haven't had that really since about 1994, 95, 96. So it's been a really long time and it really gives us a great thrill to uh, see you all participating that way and also our teams doing so well. Well, if you will, please open your Bibles to uh, James chapter 2. And let me kind of set the stage here. You know, James is a real meddler. Uh, The kinds of subjects that he deals with are the kinds of subjects that really uh, can cause a lot of trauma in people's lives. A little bit about James. Uh, You need to understand, and if you've had New Testament, you already know this, but I might refresh your memory. Uh, The book was written about 40 to 50 A.D., which makes it the first book of the new of the new testament that was written. And if you look at it this way, you need to understand that this is the first church in Jerusalem. James was the first leader of that church. But what's fascinating here is to kind of put it in a time frame. See, 40 to 50 AD meant the most almost everybody in that congregation had either seen or knew directly about our Lord. It's only some 15 to 20 years after his Death and Resurrection, that this particular book is written. Now, the issue here, obviously, also is, here you have a brand new church, and the question you have to ask yourself is, how do you do church? We're all used to being in synagogues, and all of a sudden, now we have this whole new way of worship. And so, obviously, there are a lot of bumps and scrapes that you have to go through in this whole process now also James is a pastoral book he is a pastor and he's speaking to his congregation but this letter also then goes out throughout the Christian world now it's also very fascinating here that James also is criticized in fact Martin Luther criticized him very strongly and actually called the book of James an epistle of straw and that's because if you read it through, you'll see that James doesn't really speak much to the kinds of subjects that the Apostle Paul spoke to and wrote about in all of his epistles. Uh, In fact, Paul basically breaks the gospel apart and shows us what the gospel is. James assumes the gospel and shows us what our lives will be like if we believe. And I think the best capsulization of that is really the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. And you can almost sense here that Paul is riffing, if you will, on what he has already heard or, re- or read from the Apostle James. And you know these verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, lest not, of your wor- not of your works, lest any man should boast. And then he goes on, though, to basically say, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, verse 10 says, for what? For good works. So the result, then, of your salvation should be what? A lifestyle that is characterized by your good works. Not in earning salvation, but that should be a direct result of what Christ has already done in your life. Now, to set the stage even further, I'm going to do something that is not usually done. You're open to James chapter 2, and I'm going to take about three or four minutes, and I'm going to read the passage to you right now. And what I want you to think about and note as you read this passage is how many times James speaks to the issue of injustice within the Christian community and then the issue of mercy. All right, so follow along. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whosoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point shall become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do do not commit adultery but do murder, You have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Father, we would just ask this morning that you would take this passage and drill it into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Well, let me talk today about what I would consider to be the themes in Christian community. Three points. That's what you're supposed to have, right? What kind of community we should be, why we should be this way, and how we can become it. What kind of community we should be, why we should be this way, and how we can become it. So let's begin with point number one. What kind of community should be? We be. And James talks about that immediately in chapter 2. Look at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then he expands on that. Go down to verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So what James is basically saying here to this young church is inside the Christian community there should not be the favoring of one social group or economic class or cultural group or racial group over another. That's the plain teaching of this particular passage. And if there is, James says, and you can see this in the last part of verse 4, if there is this, you have become judges with evil thoughts. Now what that basically means is you can picture a judge sitting up in a courtroom and the idea simply is, in, in, this, in this statement, is simply, is simply this, that you as a judge are preventing justice. You have become judges with evil thoughts, which means then to take a bribe or it's a judge with vicious intentions. So, if inside the Christian if inside the Christian community you privilege one group, you are like an official that takes a bribe. And you are preventing justice. Now, we have a really interesting example of this also in the early church. Don't turn to it, but let me explain it to you and you'll see how the early church leaders, actually the apostles dealt with this kind of problem. It's in Acts chapter 6. Now once again we're in Acts chapter 6 which means we are within 60 days of the ascension. All those early chapters up to Stephen take place within a matter of weeks. You have You have the ascension, you have the giving of the Holy Spirit, you have Peter's great speech on Pentecost, you have Peter and John being brought before the Sanhedrin, you have Ananias and Sapphira, and then we come to chapter 6. Now what happens in chapter 6? Simply this. In chapter 6, there were two groups within the early church, both being Jews, by the way. You had the Hellenistic Jews. Jews that spoke, in and understood and thought in Greek. Now they were the minority in this early church in Jerusalem. But the Hellenistic Jews were more com- were more cosmopolitan in their s- in their sensibilities and se- and came somewhat from a different culture. On the other hand, you had obviously the Hebrew speaking Jews. And what had happened, we see in verse one of chapter six, is that tensions arose over the daily distribution. Now you know in the early church the the Christians had been very generous in giving a a lot of their finances to helping those in the church who were less fortunate. But what had happened was the Hellenistic Jewish widows were being neglected in the Jerusalem church. And so the offerings to the church to to support those who did not have an income were directed towards specifically all the widows but what was happening as I said again they were the widows of the hellenistic Jews were being neglected so in verse 2 we see that the apostles then appointed a whole new group of leaders in fact these are the first deacons and they were appointed to address this problem that was evident in the early church in Jerusalem. So in verse 5, we see that all those that were appointed had Greek names. So you see here what the apostles are trying to do. What they were trying to do was to empower a disempowered group. Now listen, this problem was not intentional. It's just the way things tend to happen in Christian community. There was simply a lack of awareness. And what we see here is the apostles being taking ingenuity and sensitivity and creating a a new format so that they could become a community of justice in this particular area. Now, also we see that besides how we become a community, secondly, we are to be a community of mercy. Now look at verse 13 of chapter 2, if you will. Okay, verse 13. Of chapter 2. Now, here, let me just kind of upset the thing. Paul was, or James was talking here about the whole issue of what does it mean to love your neighbor. And he goes into a dissertation about the law that if you fail one part of the law, because the law is one continuous thought really, then you have violated the entire law. And then he comes down to this, and I'll start in verse 12. So speak, so speak, and so act as those. Who are to be judged under the law of liberty? For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over justice. Now, this is a very strong statement that James makes here—that mercy should triumph over, really, over partiality. So, when we think of mercy, though, it means kind, it means being kind and forgiving in one context in the New Testament. We also know theologically that there's a context too. You all know theologically that mercy is withholding something from a person that they deserve. The other side of the coin is grace. Grace is giving you what? Something you what? Don't deserve. But in this case, that's not really the main thrust. The thrust here has to do with what we also see in the Gospels, when we see our Lord's, our Lord's confrontation with the lepers. And what these lepers did, they were asking Jesus for a special kind of mercy. That is a mercy that would meet their what? Their physical need. They wanted to be healed of leprosy. We also see this as well in the parable of the Good Samaritan, don't we? We see our Lord's confrontation with the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler thinks he answers everything correctly. Okay, and then the Lord asks him a very simple question that cut him to the, that will eventually cut him to the heart. And that simply is, who is your neighbor? And the, and the young man that our Lord was questioning basically had the position that his neighbor was people like him. The leadership, the wealthy, the scribes, the Pharisees. Okay, but then the Lord gives what? The Lord gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what do we find in that parable? we find find basically that the one who is the outcast, the one who is hated, becomes the one who comes to the help of an injured and wounded Jew lying by the side of the road. And so we get the emphasis there, don't we? That there is a side of mercy that deals with physical needs. So in this context then, I think we need to understand very very clearly that we are to be a community radically committed to justice and mercy. Now secondly then second major point is this why we should be this way. We've talked about we've talked about what kind of a community but why should we be this way? And now here James is not pragmatic, all right? He also gives us theological reasons for why we do justice and show mercy. It's not for somebody, it is not enough for somebody to tell us to do these things. We need to know why we should be this way. Okay? So we see it once again, go back to verse 1, which is a very kind of synoptic verse here. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. So here's the reason for justice and mercy. The reason is because we hold to the faith of the Lord of glory. The whole Christian faith is based on Christ who reveals the glory of God. So this becomes then the theological motivation. If you understand the glory of God and of Jesus Christ, you will be a person, you have to be, if you really understand that deeply, you have to be then a person of justice and mercy. And once again, in verses 2 to 4, if you don't treat people as equals, and you don't see them as infinitely value and of worth, you don't understand the glory of God, the glory of Jesus Christ, you will be a person that is or can be unjust. Now let me expand this a little more. In order to see this clearly, look at chapter 3, verse 9. Now we're going to a different context here. In in chapter 3, we're talking about the tongue, gossip, how we treat others with what we say, and how we can cut people to the core, to the quick, with our words. You know this little saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, the words will never hurt me. That is one of the most ridiculous statements ever made in the history of the world because you all know that words can do what words can cut incredibly deeply and so we, ha- we kind of see the same thing going on here in chapter three but it refers back again we can see the, we'll see the tie and look at verse nine with it that is the tongue we bless our lord and father and with it we curse people who are made in the image of god Now, the Jews always had this process of when they talked about God, they would always use the word blessed. That's kind of the context here. And so you have this idea of a person, when he is publicly speaking to God, he is using the term blessed. But then the person turns around, according to John, and does what? He curses an individual. And what we see here, this is incredibly important. Well, look at this. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people, but look at this, who are made what? Or or who are made in the who? The, The likeness and image of God. That's how serious it is when you curse another human being, and even worse when you curse another Christian, because you are cursing someone who has been created in the image of God. And James is referring back, actually, to the book of Genesis, the first three chapters. And so we see here, this is is an amazing, amazing and important thing to get a hold of. That when you, on the one hand, you're blessing God, and then you turn right around and you curse someone, and even worse, another Christian, that is created in the image of God. Now I want to expand on this a little bit, not so much on just the idea of the image of God, if if I might. Now, you know, we live, we live in, a, in, a, in a Western culture, if you will. But it's interesting that in Western civilization, we ask the question, where did the idea of rights come from? In our Constitution, it says unalienable rights. That is, rights that cannot be taken away. It didn't come from the pagans, all right? Neither the, neither the Greeks or the Romans believed this. They all believed that some people were born to be slaves. They were born to be slaves. It's very interesting if you go back and you read the preaching of southern pastors in the civil war in the pre-civil war period. They thought one of the most important things as to why slavery should should be allowed to stand is because it allowed them to lift the inferior being to a higher level. That was preached from the pulpits in the South, pre-Civil War and also during the Civil War. But the idea really did not come from other civilizations. It doesn't come from Buddhism. It doesn't come from Islam. It doesn't come from Hinduism. In all three of those systems, what is the role of women in those systems? There's no idea of image-bearing. There's no idea of being created in the image of God, which makes people at that level equal. Where did this idea came from, come from? It came from Christian jurists of the Middle Ages. Brian Tierney, who teaches medieval history at Cornell University, says that these Christian jurists thought out the implication of being created in the image of God. David Bentley Hart, also, who is a, who is a mid middle uh, is a mid, uh, uh teaches medieval history at the University of Notre Dame, says this. Hospitals came from Christians. St. Ephraim in 350 A.D., city of Odessa, established hospitals for all affected by the plague and opened them to all. St. Fabiola the first public hospital that was established was by her in 399 A.D., which provided food for the hungry and cared for the widows. And Hart puts it like this. By the way, he, was, he, he is an Orthodox Christian as well. We must not forget where our contemporary Western society's larger notion of the moral good comes from. Compassion, pity, and charity as we understand them, have not always been around. We should acknowledge that we are inheritors of a social conscience whose ethical grammar would have been very different if it had not been shaped by Christianity. Wow. But now you look at today. How can this ethic be maintained in a culture today who largely rejects Christianity? You know, we live in a society where the elites at least tell us that there is no such thing as the image of God. Well, how then do they come to a point that it's important to treat everybody equally? It becomes an individual decision. There is no overarching reason or rationale to do this. So if you believe as an individual... That you should treat people equally, that's fine, that's what you should do. But what about somebody else? Now, let me tell you where this comes from. This comes out of the 60s, in what we call the Age of Authenticity. I'm not encouraging you, any of you, to pick up uh, Taylor's huge bookstop, which is about 700 pages. But he talks about these different eras that we've moved through, and he calls the 60 era the era of authenticity. By the way, that goes about spirituality, too, today. Everybody wants to be spiritual, but who sets the tone and the terms of that spirituality? Who? The individual. There is no overarching theme or umbrella that tells individuals and holds them to a higher standard of accountability. So when you talk about equality, that's okay for you to have that. But you can see where this goes when there is no overarching standard of value. So the question then for us, though, here we are, we're the Christian community, we sit here, we believe that individuals are created in the image of God, we believe that they have worth and value, they're not blobs of protoplasm on the way to the manure pile. Okay, no, they are created in the image of God. And so the point is, and especially as Christians, that puts a tremendous impact upon us as to how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, how do we become this kind of community? You guys are going to really get out early today. I don't know why they put me on so early. But we're making really great time. so let's go, let's go ahead. I'm sure you won't mind, will you? <laughs> so, how do we become this kind of community? Well, let me give you three things. I want to talk to you about identity, I want to talk to you about poverty, and I want to talk to you about beauty. And we'll wrap this up. Identity. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. Verse 7 of chapter 2. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you have been called? And here, once again, he's talking about the rich, okay, and how they treat the poor man. Now remember, this is within the church here. This is not this is within a Christian community. It's not outside of it. James is not speaking to unbelievers here. James is speaking to believers. And so he says, after you do this, he says about them, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Young people, you have a noble an honorable name. Where did you get that name? Our president spoke directly to that last week. That name was given to you when Christ called you to himself in time past. At that point in time, you received an honorable and noble name. That's how highly you are regarded by the God who created the universe. This is our Christian identity. Rich and poor, when you become a Christian, you have this noble name. And this noble name has nothing to do with class, with race, with education, with family, No, it is because of God's sovereign plan. We have a noble and honorable name. Now, the most important thing I'm going to say today has to do with this. It has to do with your identity. Follow the rationale here. If you believe, if if you're not a Christian, Give this example. If you you believe you are saved by your good works, either you say, I'm saved because I'm a good person. That's why God loves me. Or on the other hand, you might say, I don't do good works and therefore I'm a bad person and God rejects me. It's kind of either a, a high or a low vision of yourself. However, stay with me. The moment you become a Christian and believe the gospel, That in yourself, you deserve nothing but rejection. But you are saved, not by your performance or your works, but by Jesus' work. God accepts you because of what He has done. Now, let me just kind of back up here, because he talks a lot about poor Christians here and rich Christians. How does that affect people? Well, look, uh, if you're a poor Christian, what this allows you to do, and, I'm, and none of us probably are even in this category, but if you're, a poor, if you're a poor Christian, what that does is, when you know that your salvation has nothing to do with you, that it's based on Christ's work and Christ alone. What that does for you, if you're a poor person, is it explains to you your high position. You're still a sinner, and yet in Christ you are valued. Now, for successful Christians, which would be most of us, we live in the United States, we should also dwell, in the sense, on our on our sinful low position, even though we are adopted children. Because of this in our community, the distinctives go away. The poor are lifted up, and the successful are humbled. So, what am I saying here? We all need a God-shaped identity. Once again, we have a noble and we have an honorable name. So, first of all, our identity. Secondly, our poverty. Look at verse 5. Our poverty. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? This is this is this is a think of our think of the third world today. All right? Think of the third world. Think of areas in America where there is extensive poverty. And then read that through read that through, through these words. And by the way, If you read through the epistles, you'll find out that there becomes a time when the the Jerusalem church really was a very, very poor church, especially after the Apostle Paul got through with them. So, once again, verse 5. Okay, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Which he has promised to those who love him. Wow. Now, listen the simple fact throughout history in general, the poor have responded to the gospel in much greater numbers than the wealthy or the powerful. The wealthy or the powerful. Why then do the poor turn to the gospel in greater numbers? Well, let me put it like this. The wealthy in general look to their success through their worldly security. Remember the, remember the temptation, our Lord's temptation, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life? That's the same, t- same temptation that was given that was given to Eve in Genesis 3, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. John, John brings that up in the second chapter of 1 John once again temptations never change. They're the same from the Garden of Eden till now. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. What is pridely life? Pridely life is believing in your worldly security. And that's the greatest temptation of wealth. You don't have to worry about anything. The only thing basically you can't control is time. You lose time. But basically other than that, you can can meet all your needs, you have power, you have a good life. And so that's why the wealthy in general look to their success for their worldly security. The gospel says the only way to salvation, really though, is to throw yourself on the bleeding charity of God's grace through Jesus' sacrifice. See, the poor people, poor people understand this because they have very little. The wealthy in general don't ask for grace because they believe they don't need it. It's a, very interesting, it's a very interesting conundrum that that tends to be the case. Just, think, just look at the world today. Where, where, is the greatest gains, where are the greatest gains in Christianity taking place, taking place today? Is it in Western Europe? It is, is it in the United States and Canada? No, where is it? It's in Africa, it's in Indonesia, it's in South America. It's really amazing what's going on there in terms of of the work of God. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say that it's all legitimate, but nevertheless, there's a tremendous moving in many areas of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the people don't what? They don't have anything. This is the greatest thing they've ever heard, that there is salvation, that their sins can be forgiven. Well, one last one, okay? Identity, poverty, and the beauty of our Savior. John, t- John tells the church of Jerusalem very clearly, and this sums it up, and this is why Luther did not like what John wrote. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But what John is really saying is what Paul said in Galatians 2, 8 to 10. Our works does, do, does what? Our work do what? Our works prove our what? Proves our faith. Now, what are the works in this passage? The works in this passage are mercy and justice. How we treat all as our equal. Now look, just think think about this. Think about yourself right now. What did you look like to God before the Holy Spirit came and drew you to himself? Our work's righteousness. Look, the scripture's clear on this. Our work's righteousness is revolting to God. Anything we do that we think helps us to gain, standard, to gain standing before God, God rejects. Listen, you'll never be more loved at this point in time or at the point of time when you became a Christian. That's position. There's nothing you can do to, aim, to, to add greater righteousness to you in your relationship to Christ. Look, we have to continually think about what our relationship to God was prior to our salvation. We must never forget what we were, what we were saved from. You know what that does? That produces a humility and thankfulness to God in our lives. Lastly, we must never forget And I want you to hear this. We must never forget that Jesus became a poor man for us. Isaiah 53, Jesus became the revolted one. His his glory on the cross was taken. He lost his glory so that we could have a noble name. I shared this with you a couple years ago, but I think, I think C.S. Lewis really does it the best. C.S. Lewis calls the relationship of the Trinity the dance of God. In eternity past, a perfect relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That was our Lord's great loss when he became a poor man for us. He was judged so we could have God's mercy. Romans 21, 26. Though Jesus, through Jesus, the Father can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus. If you know this, you will do justice and mercy, not because you have to, but because you want to, because you love the Lord of glory. Young people, we just need to see the beauty in what Jesus has done for us to save us. It is in losing his glory that our Savior becomes so glorious. When we see Jesus for who he is, then we can build a community of justice and mercy. When we see ourselves as before we were saved and Jesus taking God's punishment that was meant for us, how can we not be a community of justice and mercy? Father God, Thank you so much for your loving kindness. We thank you for this passage once again that makes it so clear that everybody in this room is created in the image of God, that they have worth and value, that they deserve to be treated in this way. And Father, help us to be sensitive to those around us. Help us to see people, see our, see our friends, see our contemporaries here at the Masters University as those who have been created in the image of God and that you love. And then help us to take that and to share justice and mercy within our own community. And for this, we'll give you all the praise and glory in your name. Amen.